KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. The FDA gives full approval for the Pfizer vaccine. So we're hoping this will get others to say, you know, it's time for me to get the vaccine because we vetted this process completely. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We take a close look at a candidate running in the recall election. I was reading Larry Elder's old books and looking through his early articles, and I, I was finding that he was repeatedly quoting a open white supremacist. And the census, what it tells us about how Latinos are identifying. And we'll tell you how the studio door is celebrating its seventh anniversary. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Earlier today, the FDA announced it's giving full approval to the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for those 16 years and older. Soon after, California State Public Health Officer Dr. Tomas Aragon declared, if you are not vaccinated, let this be the milestone that gets you there. To talk more about what this approval means for San Diego's vaccine effort and its fight to end the pandemic, we are joined by Dr. Robert Gillespie, a physician with Sharp Healthcare and a founding member of the San Diego County COVID-19 Equity Task Force. Dr. Gillespie, welcome. Thank you very much, as always. So what does having this full FDA approval mean for vaccination efforts? We hope that it means people will now understand that this is not just an experimental use authorization, and that it's now something that has been vetted by the FDA in full. The FDA is quite thorough. That's why we didn't want this rushed. We now have a product that has been fully approved through their process, which includes not only looking at the clinical trials, but the post-marketing data, all the data that's been gathered after the clinical trials uh, information was first started, looking at side effect profiles, looking at the sites by which these vaccines are even made. So a a long laundry list of things to get full FDA approval, and that's why it took the time that it did. So we're hoping this will get others to say, you know, it's time for me to get the vaccine because we vetted this process completely. Now, I believe you are just about to give a speech on the state of vaccines and mandates. Uh, How did you have to update your talk, given this latest news of the vaccine's approval? I didn't really, because last week we sort of knew this was going to happen. So I just made the change that, indeed, this was going to be, this has now been approved. I think from a practical standpoint, we've had so much data on this vaccine on these vaccines for the last several months that I felt very comfortable recommending it even before FDA approval. I think what this does now is for those of those people who were very reluctant because it was still considered EUA or experimental use authorization, that can no, no longer be the argument to not get the vaccine. And let's hope that drives a little bit more in the direction of getting those who haven't been vaccinated, vaccinated. 
What impacts do you think this announcement will have on those who thus far have not been vaccinated? You know, I must tell you, the biggest impact is going to be the mandates, um, and which unfortunately many, of course, don't like to be told what to do, and, and I understand that. I think this will move a small percentage of the people in that direction now that we have that full FDA approval. I think the data is so clear from the information we've acquired up until now that the impact really now is going to be mandates. Though I think this is a very positive thing. I'm not trying to minimize it. It gives us more information to share with the public to get those who are hesitant to be vaccinated. And you are on the county's COVID-19 equity task force. When we look at the demographics of people who are vaccine resistant or hesitant, are we still seeing, what are we seeing there right now? It's a very interesting mix at this point. Clearly, there is still a gap between African-Americans and others getting vaccinated, particularly amongst the young. If you look at older African-Americans, very high uptake of, of vaccine. But if you look at younger African-Americans, the numbers are still much lower than we would want. Uh, we also see a very significant population outside of that who are resistant, some based on religious grounds, um, maybe a small percentage or some based on um, political affiliation. But the biggest concern I continue to have is the gap between African-Americans and, and the rest in, in, the society, in society. How do you think this FDA approval will change that? I think the biggest thing that I have found with vaccine-hesitant African-American patients has been getting the data from a trusted messenger. And I find day in and day out when we sit down and have a real discussion, it changes many minds. I still think that's the most important thing. I think now having this as an extra tool is invaluable for those who use the argument about the UA. But I still believe the most important thing is having an honest discussion regarding these issues with various members in the community. You know, earlier you mentioned vaccine mandates. How does this FDA approval impact the implementation of vaccine mandates? And do you think we could see more of them in the near future? I think when we look at mandates, we have to look particularly at healthcare. Let's start with healthcare. And that is our our the job for healthcare professionals is to do no harm. Let's face it, most people, if they indeed have an infection and they know it, they wouldn't cover up others. The problem is this that this virus has a high incidence of asymptomatic infection, meaning no symptoms at all, or pre-symptomatic meaning that over 50% of people may not have symptoms when they're transmitting the virus. We now have the Delta variant that has probably a role. When we say a role, we mean the likelihood of transmitting to others. About one person infecting to, may infect up to five to eight people. That number used to be about two to two and a half. And also the incubation period is much lower, so we can't track things as quickly as easily. So when you look at mandates, we have to look at the impact that we're having not necessarily intentionally, certainly not intentionally, on those around us. The ease by which we can infect each other unknowingly, unwittingly with this. So I, I believe that now that we have FDA approval, it will give employees who are reluctant to make that mandate for legal reasons another way to present this to their employees, unequivocally in the healthcare industry, but certainly in other areas also. Do you expect any additional FDA approvals to come in the near future? I mean, is there an expected timeline for these approvals? If you remember, there was about a week of difference between the EUAs for the Pfizer 
and um, for the Moderna vaccine. The Moderna vaccine, there were a couple of more issues related to a little higher incidence of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart. That is possible. It may delay FDA reviewing it a little bit longer, but I don't think by long. I anticipate that you'll see the Moderna vaccine approved in short order and the J&J sometime after that. And we know many kids across the country are heading back to school now, but this FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine is only for those 16 years and up. Why did it not get full approval for those between the ages of 12 and 16? That's an excellent question. If you go back to the initial data source, there were 44,000 people included in the initial trial, the Pfizer trial. Very well diversified group of all different races and colors. Very did a very good job with that. But it, two things that didn't happen: one, younger kids were not included. That is, that twelve to fifteen you're talking about, as well as pregnant women. That's a whole other topic. Um, so the reason that you're seeing it for sixteen and older is because the, most of the data that we have is for the people who were in that initial data set. We're, on, we're still looking at the younger folks, uh, 12 to 15 will be the next group that hopefully will get full approval down the road. Just not enough time yet. Again, the FDA is very, very strict in the way they approach these things. We don't want public confidence to be eroded. And also you have to go through the data set. Just not enough time yet. Mm. What's the status of children under 12? Um, when do you think a vaccine may be available to them? Well, you know, it, the date has changed. I thought perhaps by, uh, by now or September, it may be October, November, anticipation in the, somewhere before the end of the year. And this is all based on whether if the data shows that's appropriate. Obviously, we have to look at the data set before we can make an argument that it should be approved. But the anticipated number, I should, date should be by the end of the year. I've been speaking with Dr. Bob Gillespie, a Sharp physician and founding member of the San Diego County COVID-19 Equity Task Force. Dr. Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, as always. Have a wonderful day. Early voting is underway in the September 14th election that will decide whether Governor Gavin Newsom is kicked out of office. The first question on the ballot is a yes or no. Should Newsom be recalled? But the second question, who should replace him if the recall passes, has many voters scratching their heads. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen takes a closer look at four of the 46 replacement candidates. We picked these candidates because they've most consistently polled among the top. And we'll start with the favorite, conservative radio host Larry Elder. Elder has been on the air for decades, and his national profile has helped him rise fast in the polls. Still, his politics would be a sharp right turn for blue California. Elder, who's black, denies the existence of systemic racism. He opposes gun control and abortion rights, and he believes the minimum wage should be abolished. Here he is speaking with the Sacramento Bee editorial board. I never have quite understood why a third-party-like government Uh, why that government feels it's anybody's business, what my relationship is with an individual who willingly sold his labor uh, and my relationship with that person when I willingly bought that labor. Uh, Why two people who are adults can't determine what the price of labor ought to be is beyond me. Next, let's look at San Diego businessman John Cox. You might recognize him as the 2018 Republican candidate for governor, 
or his use of a live bear as a campaign prop. Cox wants to use the criminal justice system to force people experiencing homelessness into mental health treatment. He rejects the national best practice of giving them housing first. And he told Cal Matters the government's response to COVID-19 borders on hysteria. It's not Ebola. It's not the smallpox. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I think maybe what we ought to do is take a step back and take a deep breath and say, you know, We'll do what we can. Uh, we'll keep people as protected as we can, but we're never going to get rid of this disease. And I think it's disingenuous on a part of politicians to think, gee, we're going to end this disease completely. Another familiar face for San Diegans is former San Diego mayor Kevin Faulkner. He's tried to claim the title of the most moderate Republican in the race and the one with the most experience in elected office. On housing, Faulkner touts San Diego's Complete Communities program that allows denser and taller apartment buildings near public transit. And during a CAP radio debate, he said California's laws need to change so similar programs can get done faster. We shouldn't have had to do over a year that it took to do that. It needs to be streamlined. We need to make it easier so we can actually construct the housing where we want it, which is along our transit corridors. That's where you want the density, not in single-family neighborhoods. Elder, Cox, and Faulkner are all Republicans who supported Donald Trump in 2020. But one Democrat has emerged as a top contender among the replacement candidates, YouTuber and real estate broker Kevin Paffrath. He's young, 29, and his platform includes converting vacant commercial buildings into homeless shelters. But he doesn't say where the shelters would be or how he'd pay for them. His pitch to voters, a Republican governor won't get anything done with Democrats controlling the legislature. I'm not a far leftist and I'm not a far rightist. In fact, most people who learn about me don't even know if I'm a Democrat or a Republican. That's because my policies and my solutions are California solutions. They're neutral, middle-of-the-road solutions, and I seek to provide those solutions with both Democrats and Republicans. These are only four of 46 candidates trying to replace Newsom. But remember, if a majority of voters say no to the recall, Newsom stays in office, and the vote on who should replace him doesn't matter. Recent polls have shown likely voters are almost evenly split on whether Newsom should be recalled. That's because Democrats are more apathetic and less likely to vote, while Republicans are energized at the prospect of taking over the Golden State. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. In addition to his extreme right-wing agenda, recall candidate Larry Elder has been encountering some unwelcome publicity in recent days. A former fiancé has made allegations of emotional and verbal abuse against Elder, including an incident involving a gun. This led to calls for him to drop out of the race. And today, state election regulators have launched an investigation into whether Elder withheld information about the sources of his income. But beyond the recent headlines, critics say it's Elder's ideology and use of misleading statistics that is the real scandal and real threat to California. Joining me is LA Times columnist Jean Guerrero. And Jean, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Great to be here. Larry Elder is a black candidate who has gained support for his denial of systemic racism in America. Is this the same kind of ideology he's had all along on his radio talk show? It is. He, you know, back in 2000, he wrote this book uh, called The Ten Things You Can't Say in America. 
And one of the, I think the first thing that he says is, is black people are more racist than white people. Um, and a lot of other really incendiary stuff that his largely white audiences uh, from his talk show hosts, which he'd been having since uh, the early 1990s, um, just just ate it up. You know, they they just they love the idea that there's this this black man who's sort of giving them permission to have these um, very racist, very backward, very anti-fact um, beliefs. So the statistics that Elder uses about crimes committed by African-Americans, can you trace those numbers back to white supremacist publications? I can. You know, that was one of the most surprising things while I was writing my column is I was, you know, I was looking through, um, I was reading Larry Elder's old books and looking through his early articles. And I, I was finding that he was repeatedly quoting a open white supremacist named Jared Taylor. Uh, Jared Taylor is is a man who who says that we need a white majority country. He says uh, really incendiary stuff about the black community. He says things like, you know, if black people are left to their own devices, Western civilization crumbles. Um, and and Larry Elder, who now could be the next governor of California, repeatedly quoted this man. You spoke with a number of legal scholars about elder statistics on black crime. And what did they tell you? So they all told me that these are gross distortions um, of reality and and incredibly dishonest. I'm talking about crime law professors at Columbia University, at Stanford University, at UC Berkeley, at Fordham University, all of them debunked these stats. One of the things that he likes to say again and again is, quote, blacks kill two times as many whites as whites kill blacks, end quote. Um, and all of the experts I talk to say, you know, this is in- extraordinarily dishonest because it ignores crucial context, which is the fact that there are more white people in the United States than there are black people. And because of that, it's mathematically inevitable that there, that if there is any cross-racial offending, there are going to be more white people victimized. It's It's a matter of random chance. It's not because black people, you know, go after white people at a disproportionate rate. Have you reached out to Larry Elder to comment on some of the feedback you got from professors and so forth about his statistics? I have, yes. I reached out to him and and he did, you know, he he never responded. And and previously he had made it clear that his campaign um did not plan to speak with me because I had done some reporting about his relationship with Stephen Miller, uh the Trump senior advisor and speechwriter which he which he did not like. Um and so he has decided not to participate. Elder has also spoken about Latinos and criminality, and it seems he's no friend of immigrants, whether they're legal or illegal. That's right. I mean, Larry Elder is to the right of Donald Trump on immigration issues, which is extraordinary when you think about the fact that he could become the next governor of California, which has been a leader on immigrant rights and racial justice issues for the past few decades, you know, he plans to use his veto power to cut funding for a lot of these programs that have benefited immigrant populations. But but he's he's so far right that he even believes that people who are born in this country should not be citizens. He he doesn't believe in birthright citizenship, which is in our constitution. Um, if he, he doesn't believe that people who are born to undocumented people should be citizens. Um, so he, he poses a real threat, even as far as just like he, he opposes um, vaccine and 
masking mandates. He opposes doing anything about climate change. And both of those would disproportionately impact communities of color because we've, you know, we've already borne the brunt of those disasters. His relative popularity in the polls must show he's touching a chord among voters. Is it his support of police that's getting noticed? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I mean, that that, that that could be a part of it, although I believe that one of the reasons that he's polling so high is because the people who are motivated to participate in this recall election, uh, the the people who are most excited about this are are people on the far right. Other communities who actually have a lot to lose, who have a lot of stake in this election, um, lack information. I think the Democrats are not doing a very good job of of informing vulnerable communities about what what they have to lose in this election. And I've spoken to a number of Latinos, young Latinos in particular, who who don't really know um, why this recall election is is so important and and just aren't getting the information from the Newsom campaign. I've been joined by LA Times columnist Jean Guerrero. Jean, thank you. Thanks so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego State University students begin fall semester today largely in-person and vaccinated. San Diego Community College students go back to school today, too. SDSU was forced to abandon most campus classes last year because of a spike in COVID cases at the start of the fall 2020 semester. School officials are expecting a very different outcome now with a vaccine mandate in place and more oversight on campus parties and gatherings. But... Some college area residents are raising concerns that the enthusiasm of pent-up college kids is creating bigger-than-usual party culture this year, one which could allow the Delta variant to spread, spiking cases once again. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. And Gary, welcome. Hi, it's good to be with you. So from a virtual ghost town last year, the campus here is now filled with students. About how many are enrolled for this semester? It looks like it's going to be about 33,000, very close to what it was last year. Is there any criticism that SDSU may be opening up to in-person classes too soon? I think it's better described as anxiety. I talked to Caitlin uh, Nguyen, the editor of the Daily Aztec, and she was telling me that kids are very, very hungry for normalcy, but at the same time, they're anxious about COVID. So while the university's done a very good job of getting people vaccinated, you know, everybody is looking at the Delta variant and seeing what it's doing, and students are worried about that. Um, She said that some had expressed a desire to have the university uh, put out some more online courses. So I think that students are feeling the same anxiety that everybody else is feeling. Now, how strong is the school's vaccine requirement? What kind of proof do students and faculty have to show? They have to show literal proof that they're vaccinated. They have a system for it. And it seems to have worked very, very well under uh, Libby Skiles, the health director. Um, The stats we got last week said that nearly 100% of the students um, who are intending to use the campus have been vaccinated. And they were going to get the others uh, to make sure that it was 100%. So from that standpoint, things have gone well. 
What are the masking requirements on campus? People have to be masked, uh, including indoors, based on what I heard most recently. You know, we're seeing this across society right now, and the university uh, is just trying to go along with what everybody else is doing. It's a very fluid situation. I talked to Luke Wood, who is the vice president of student affairs, and he said that they're trying to keep up with all the health changes that are going on. Um, For example, they were supposed to have convocation held, I believe, inside. Now they were moving it outside and breaking it up. So they're doing what others are doing. They're trying to get as many things outside as possible and into smaller groups uh, to um, promote social distancing. Is the school's health department going to monitor for any outbreaks? And if indeed they do, will that info be made available to the students and the public? Uh, We were told that it will be. So they're going to do what they did last year, where they're going to post the number of positive infections online. Uh, They started slowly last year with that, but then uh, did a pretty good job of it. And they intend to do the same thing this year. I didn't look at the website last night, so I don't know if it's ready yet. But um, the university did say they are going to do that. Now, you spoke with some college area residents who were concerned about student parties even before the semester had begun. This last weekend sparked a lot of complaints. How are they describing this year's party scene? So I talked to about 15 residents and people are really, really, really angry. They say that things this year are worse than they have ever been. They say that kids are essentially ignoring all the the social norms about this. People point to uh, an example that happened last week on Montezuma Road at one of these student parties where a sign was put outside that said, um, you honk, we drink. Uh, On the day that parents were moving people into dorms or kids into dorms, uh, Delta Chi fraternity had a sign up that said, daughter daughter drop off center. So that kind of attitude is really irritating people in the public. Plus there's been a lot of really large parties before the semester even started going into what happened on Saturday and Sunday. Um, There was a real mess over the weekend. There were big parties everywhere, particularly on Campanile Drive, where residents told the Union Tribune that it descended into mayhem. There was a shooting not far away. It involved a 16-year-old teenager. He was not part of uh, the campus community, but he was in the area where the parties were being held. Residents say that there were fireworks going off all over uh, College Area through the weekend. They were concerned about that because there's a lot of dry canyons, and as you know, we're in a drought. And there was a lot of street racing. So I'm getting a lot of emails from people who are very upset. Neighbors have been complaining about students partying at SDSU for years. What are the unique elements, perhaps, about the complaints this year? Well, it appears that there's an increase in the number of students who live in college area. So as we all know, there's been a big increase in the number of so-called mini dorms up in college area. Private investors, homeowners can can add on places for people to live, and uh, large numbers of students are living in those units. Now, the problem is we don't know how big an issue this is. I talked to Luke Wood about it, and he said he's seen an increase. The university was going to provide statistics about it, but it hasn't. So we don't know how many students used to live in college area, say, if you go back three years compared to what you're seeing now. But you can drive the streets, and you you see construction of these mini dorms uh, underway. So that is a real issue. And so far, people really haven't uh, dealt with it very thoroughly. Now, the school apparently is using neighborhood patrols and text messages to get students to take the partying down a notch. How will that work? Well, apparently not very well. Um, This text messaging was supposed to start um, over the weekend. Uh, Dr. Wood was saying that they were going to send messages to students who live in specific houses where the um, uh, complaints arose. 
Um, so in other words, the university knows the name and the cell phone numbers of people living in specific places. They do have patrols, but the patrols don't really have any authority. So there's a, the, um, a patrol that's put together by the university that's staff members, but they cannot walk up and say someone's door, knock on it and say, hey, turn things down. And elite security, which, which works on behalf of the university, can't do that either. They can report and record, but they, can, they can't do anything further. In the end, it comes to the San Diego Police Department and residents have been calling them, you know, in great numbers to ask for help. The problem there is that the San Diego police have so many other priorities that they can't always break away to go to handle a college party. Um, the residents want the, the police department to designate a particular police officer to deal with that area. That's been a request for a long time, and uh, they're pushing it again now that there's been so many problems over the weekend. Back to COVID for a minute, all in all, would you say SDSU was confident that its safety measures will stop a repeat of last year and school will stay in session? They're expressing that confidence and there's a reason for it. I mean, so many people are getting vaccinated and we're, ta we're talking primarily about young people which generally, who generally have stronger immune systems. But we are also talking about the Delta variant, which is far more transmissible than what occurred last year. And then whatever um, variant comes after that, we don't know how that's gonna affect the public. The other thing to keep in mind is that these students are moving on campus and off campus constantly. You know, Whether they live in a dorm or not, they come and go. So they're exposed to everybody else in society. And there's still a lot of people who are unvaccinated in San Diego. These students, like anybody else, can become infected and not really personally get sick uh, to any serious degree, but they can pass it to others who could. So I think the university is concerned about that. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. Gary, thank you. You're welcome. Recently released census data shows that Latinos make up the second largest ethnic group in San Diego County after white people. Yet for many, the narrow, archaic ways that race and ethnicity are recorded on the census are failing to properly identify the region's increasingly diverse population. KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter Christina Kim joins us now with more. Christina, welcome. Hey, Jade, how are you? Good, thanks. So what are some of the key problems with how the census asks Latinos to identify? Right. Well, I think for a lot of Latinos that I spoke to for this story, they just find the census kind of confusing. And that's because since 1980, it's asked people to identify if they're Latino, Hispanic, and then their race. And for a lot of folks, that just doesn't resonate because they're viewing their Latino or their Hispanic origin as a racialized identity. They view that as who they are, and it's not separate from their race. And I think in large part that that confusion is driven by is that up until 2000, you could only select one race. And so it just wasn't allowing them to capture like their complex and diversity that is already within this idea of the Latino Hispanic umbrella term. And you report that a lot of the county's Latinos simply choose some other race when asked about their racial identity. How many people are choosing that option? So here in San Diego, 44.9% of Latinos, the majority, put down some other race. That's an over 40% increase from 2010. And actually, those are statistics that we're seeing on the national scale as well. Nationwide, 42.7% of Latinos identify as some other race. How has the way Latinos identified themselves in census data changed over time? 
It's changed a lot. As I mentioned, until 2000, people could only select one race, which actually meant that a lot of Latinos chose white or Caucasian because they didn't fit into any of the other categories. The number of Latinos who identify as white has actually decreased significantly, around 50% in the last decade, both nationally and locally. The use of the term Latino Hispanic didn't appear on the census for everyone until 1980. So that wasn't that long ago. And even before that, there was iterations of the census that asked people if they were Mexican and included Mexican as a racial category. So I think as we're kind of parsing through this data, the census itself is changing. So we're seeing how Latinos are changing the way that they identify, but it also shows the limits of what the census offers people to select their identities. Why are the questions of ethnicity and race broken up into two separate questions on the census? Right. So it's been that since 1980, and that was a decision by the U.S. Office of Management and Budget. And actually this year, the U.S. Census Bureau actually requested to change that, to actually incorporate it into one question, because it just wasn't resonating with people anymore. But really that distinction, again, is between ethnicity and race. And the reality is, is that, you know, traditionally it's like, oh, ethnicity is kind of like cultural similarities and race is phenotypic differences. And of course, these are both social constructs that are constantly changing. And I think what we're seeing more and more in what we've been talking about is for a lot of people, ethnicity and race, these are blurred concepts that have a lot of overlaps. And so again, that two-part question is kind of like the tricky one for a lot of folks. And people are increasingly identifying as multiracial rather than as a single race. I mean, do we have any data to understand how much this number has increased in recent years? You're absolutely right. So both Latinos and other people are identifying as multiracial. Nationwide, the population grew 276%. And within Latinos, that, that actually increased even more. I think in large part, we're seeing this because people, again, are having a greater understanding of their background, of their origins. You know, there's been a rise in genetic testing. I think that's actually changed the way people view their racial identities. Um, but it's also because in 2020, the way that the census was actually coded and counted was different. They really did try and capture the nuances of people's identity. They're coding it in a way so if people are doing write-in. So I think it's, again, what I was just saying, I think people are increasingly seeing themselves as multiracial. And I also think the census is doing a better job of capturing that nuance. Another aspect of this story is the difficulty in which people are attempting to signify their indigenous roots on census data. How well does the census allow people to mark their complex racial identities? I think in the past, it was really difficult to talk about ourselves in these kind of multiracial ways. I do think, you know, and the census have repeatedly said that they have made changes in order to allow for people to mark that down. And so, for instance, now if one identifies as indigenous, they have a box where they can write in more information. So I think that is allowing for a little bit of that nuance, but it, it's still not perfect. And I think that we're constantly running up against the categories, right? Running against the box. So I think it's getting better, but, you know, it's always going to fail to capture the full, you know, diversity of someone's personal identities. So are there questions then about the accuracy of census data if we're seeing so much confusion around how the data is recorded in the first place? Even though there's some confusion around how people need to fill in the boxes, and we actually did see in 2020 less people filling in their race and ethnicity, the U.S. Census Bureau officials have repeatedly said that the census data is accurate. It's just going to take time to see how accurate the 2020 census data really is. There are already studies that are looking into it that are testing it just to see how robust and accurate the data is. But, you know, time and time again, the U.S. Census Bureau has said that this data is 
robust and accurate enough for redistricting, which is really where we're at with the data that was released just last week. In terms of those kind of finer point details about really capturing people's identities, I think we will have to see in the next year or two. All right. I've been speaking with KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter Christina Kim. Christina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. In 2018, state lawmakers passed the California Consumer Privacy Act. It's supposed to give Californians more knowledge and control over what companies do with their personal data. Then last year, California voters passed a proposition creating the California Privacy Protection Act. It has the mission of defending people's privacy rights. The Privacy Protection Act is just starting to get up and running. Jennifer Urban is a privacy expert and the agency's chair and law professor at UC Berkeley. The California Report Saul Gonzalez interviewed her about the new agency. She starts with why it's needed. If you give people in a free market notice of what's going to happen, then they can make a choice. But we all know that didn't really work. We all know that um, if you try to read a privacy policy from 2010, certainly, often they would be impenetrable. You couldn't really figure out what was happening with your data, and there wasn't any chance to make a choice. So one of the most important things of the new laws is that it actually gives consumers the choice. It actually requires that businesses be clear about what they're doing and gives consumers a choice to opt out. Let's get practical. Let's say I'm a Californian right now and I want to know what company X is doing with my data. And maybe I want to go beyond that and have company X start purging my personal data. Do I go to the company with that demand? Do I go to your new agency or do I go to the state attorney general's office, which I know is supposed to be doing most of the initial data privacy enforcement work? Great question. What you do right now is you go to the company. There should be a straightforward mechanism by which you can make these requests and they should respond. If you don't get a good response from the company or no response, then you go for the moment to the attorney general. The attorney general on their website has a tool that will walk you through um, how to send a complaint to the company, and you can also complain to the attorney general, and then they will take it from there as part of their enforcement work. And take it from there means what exactly? What's going to tangibly happen? Well, right now, the the attorney general um, will send a letter. They've been sending letters to companies and telling them you're not in compliance. Um, They've said that Most 75% have just come into compliance and done what they're supposed to do under the law. Um, Over time, they have other options. Um, They could take the companies to court um, if they continue not to comply with the law. Once we have the new agency doing the administrative enforcement, um, we will be able to issue fines. Um, So we'll be able to fine companies if they are out of compliance, up to $7,500 per violation. So if a company is violating the rights of, you know, a hundred or a thousand consumers, that quickly adds up. You know, when it comes to data privacy, your agency is charged with policing some of the most powerful and richest companies on the planet. Can Californians have confidence that you'll have the people in place and the resources to actually do the job? Yes. The agency has a lot of tools at its disposal that will allow it to work on behalf of consumers and protect them. 
Um, one is the fines that we just talked about and the injunctive relief. Uh, another is the fact that although the agency's budget is not particularly large um, compared to the budget of some of the companies we might be regulating, um, we do have a steady $10 million a year that is allocated to us by the proposition. Um, and that is sufficient money to be able to have a strong investigative and enforcement team. Um, so it's not something that we have to depend on the legislature appropriating every year. Um, but at the moment, already, we have more resources than any other privacy enforcer has had in the United States. We're the first, first agency dedicated to privacy. And we do have, I think, the resources to get started and protect people's privacy. That was the chair of the California Privacy Protection Agency speaking with the California Report host, Saul Gonzalez. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This studio door is celebrating its seventh anniversary in style with the exhibit San Diego Drag Icons. Along with the exhibit, the studio door is raising money for the Emergency Food Voucher Fund and Take What You Need Tuesdays. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando says the fundraiser highlights the connection between drag and activism. Drag is a combination of art and activism. You can't pull off drag without an insane level of artistry and creativity. Yeah, drag, I've always said, is the mother of invention, right? Tootie is one of the San Diego drag icons highlighted at the studio door this month. We're always looking for different kind of mediums as well as materials to make things with. I once made a headpiece, a crown, out of hubcaps. Mm. Paris is another icon, and her drag performances are famous for inspired costumes. When I started doing drag, I kind of realized I can get away with anything. So I have like my carousel dress that has the horses, you know, roaming around it and it lights up. But doing drag, even in ridiculously cute outfits, is still at its core a provocative act because it's pushing boundaries and challenging society's norms. Maybe that's why since the 1970s, drag queens have been involved in activism for LGBTQ rights, AIDS awareness, and gender equality. That's like one of the, like, the proudest parts about being a drag queen is that we are those ones that, you know, when something goes down in the community, you want to be the kind of bright light part of it first off, but then you also want to be the part that is involved in helping. The drag is just an, an added tool to get more uh, attention. Again, Tootie. That's why the community looks to us when there is a cause or something, because we will bring people out. We're visually stimulating. Indeed they are, and the Studio Door exhibit proves it, with not just spectacular costumes on display, but also visual art from painters like Margaret Chiaro, whose series of drag queen portraits in the colors of the rainbow line one wall at the gallery. This is not my personal narrative, but one I greatly admire, and I love seeing people that are so comfortable in the spotlight and 
are obviously artists that can carry that all around the world where I hide behind my paintings. Patrick Stillman, the Studio Doors owner, says activism and drag queens go hand in hand, which is why Nicole the Great, another San Diego drag icon, worked with Stillman to create this Saturday's event as more than just a reception for the exhibit. But the heart of that is to raise funds for two great food charities, the Emergency Food Voucher Program and Take What You Need Tuesdays. Tootie recalls protesting at a Hillcrest 76 station years ago when the owner was mistreating a gay employee. And I paraded around that corner for three days nonstop with a beehive and a big 76 ball on the top of my beehive. So activism has always been a very big part of what I do. And humor always helps. You know, it breaks down barriers. I think the shine kind of catches them, you know, and the color kind of catches them off guard. And then the, the humor breaks down all the barriers in between. Those barriers are coming down, thanks to things like RuPaul's Drag Race, streaming into people's homes for more than a decade. But Paris says drag is still about challenging stereotypes, even within the LGBTQ community. Paris likes to embrace both extremes of drag, from flamboyant artifice to just dressing daily in stylish feminine outfits. I'm Filipina. For the Filipino community, I am way too much drag because they want a lot more of the natural woman. And then for the more American community, I'm way too feminine. Not so much like on the high drag, but then I am extremely flexible, so I don't know what any of y'all are talking about. My aesthetic is, again, fun. But it's fun fueled by an underlying sense of resistance to conforming to anyone's norms and the creativity to create magic out of anything. And that's what the studio door is celebrating on its seventh anniversary. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. The studio door exhibit runs through August 28th. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.